Tom is one of life's serial underachievers, uh, and I know Tom because not only is he an emergency medicine consultant of uh, some note, uh, we first worked together when he was a coach of one of the British rowing team crews as well. So not uh, uh, you know, not uh, satisfied with sort of saving people's lives and bringing them back to life, Tom is also an expert coach and, and has worked brilliantly, which is where we got to know each other as well, um, and, and some great transfer of learning. So. Uh, um, and I know from conversations Tom and I have had over the years, we've got some great stuff to get into now. So, uh, Tom, thank you very much for being here and um, really looking forward to having your expertise added into the mix. Um, just, just interested in anything that you picked up from, from Lloyd that sort of relates to your world straight away? Just wondering if there's anything, to, to, I know you make yeah, connections um, quickly. So. so I think this idea of how you respond to being challenged about whether you're good enough is really interesting. And I think what you see with medicine is that medicine is a confidence game okay. and the minute that you're not comfortable being challenged you're starting on a journey towards losing confidence and that's quite an individual thing no one else can really spot that for you yeah. but I've definitely there's been times when I've thought do I really want to be observed doing this and then you realize that the moment you don't want to do that anymore you're you're going to start losing confidence so that was that really resonated for me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And and you know, it was interesting listening to that operational piece. And, and you know, I'm quite interested in a you know specific operational situation for you, and sort of you know, and, and actually getting inside some of the performance that takes place when you know, perhaps there there is a call, there's an emergency that's in, on the way into the hospital. You're probably engaged doing something else in the hospital. I, I wonder if you could bring to life for us just a little bit of what's happening in the hospital while you're waiting for a patient to arrive because that that for me feels like a really important bit to understand how you end up delivering a performance which is a life-saving performance in those instances. I think one of the ways in which um, perhaps my work is, is different um, to, to Danny and Lloyd's, which there's a couple, so ask me the question again in a minute, but we don't know when the performance is going to be and that's quite difficult. And when, you work, when I was working with the athletes who knew when the Olympics is going to be, that's quite, quite a hard concept to understand. I, I have three jobs. So I work um, with the charity with London's Air Ambulance. Um, I work in the Major Trauma Centre for West London as a trauma team leader, and I'm part of London's major incident um, response. So I had a, a role um, at the Westminster Bridge mm -hmm. uh, terrorist attack and also uh, sadly at Grenfell Tower. Uh, and all of those things are really about the first hour okay. or the first few minutes um, because people who are very sick, people who've had severe trauma, they, they start on a path from the moment of injury where they start getting worse and they get further and further away from a path that's going to give them um, a, a survival um, outcome. And the earlier you can get in and change that path, the better. So. So we act very fast, and because you don't know when people are going to get injured, you don't know when you're going to, to work. So if the klaxon goes off on the helipad, uh, my job is to get in the helicopter. Yeah. So um, the pilots call us self-loading baggage because <laughs> we want to get off the helipad in two or three minutes. Yeah. And so what that means is you're very focused on getting in and strapping in and not breaking anything. And then the aircraft lifts, and then they pass you the iPad, which tells you what the mission is. And we're about three or four minutes flying time from anywhere in London. So three or four minutes, you're over whatever the thing is. And two minutes after that, you're in the thing. And in the major trauma center, it's kind of the same deal. So we're a very busy emergency department. Mm -hmm. We see about 300 patients a day. Um, and then about 10 times in the day, the red phone will go. 
and there'll be a message from the ambulance service or from the air ambulance saying, we're bringing you a patient <laughs> and we'll get a very little, limited bit of information about it. And we've got about 10 minutes until they arrive. And, and the challenge is that as the trauma team leader, I, I'm physically present, um, but all the people who are going to be in my team are somewhere else in the hospital doing other things. So they're going to get a pager and they're going to arrive over the course of 10 minutes. And it's not that they're racing the patient, but there's, there's often not a long time before that person arrives yeah. and that team has to start working straight away. And, and so the challenges we face are, I, I think, a couple really. One is that there are some very technical things to do that require a lot of attention and a lot of skill and that are difficult in really sick people. So it's easy when it's easy. It's easy when you're practicing on a well person. Not that we practice on well people. But, <laughs> but, Volunteers. Yeah. But when they're really sick, those, those tasks are quite technical and they require a lot of attention. But the bigger game in this first 10, 20, 30 minutes is about assimilating information and making decisions in people who, who are already getting sicker in front of you. So, and the information is incomplete. So for example, if somebody, if a motorcycle hits a car, we'll get told a motorcycle's hit a car. And, but that could mean for the patient, one of many things, it's a big difference whether that person's head has hit the car or whether they've hit the car and bounced off or hit the car and bounced up. And, and that information is really important because that energy transfer is going to tell you where the injuries are likely to be. Mm -hmm. But the person that saw them hit the car isn't there. The person that saw them hit the car told a paramedic who's told another paramedic who's telling you. Mm. And all the information that the patient can give us in those first 10 minutes is, is incomplete information. You're, you're using judgment and, and nuance to try and decide how is this person injured? What is, what is getting worse? and what do they need? And then there are some quite key, and I think this maybe is our area of expertise, quite key critical decision points where you have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. Are we going to give this, transfuse this patient or not? Because right. you can't both give blood and not give blood. Are we going to go to CT, to the CT scanner? That will give us some really good information. It will enable our surgeons to do a better job. But there's a cost to that. That CT journey is going to take you 15 minutes. So can you afford those 15 minutes? Yeah, yeah. Do we need to go to theatre now and live with less information? Yeah. Are we going to open the chest? If someone's been stabbed in the chest, they go into cardiac arrest, we have to open the chest. But you can't both open and not open the chest. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, to, you've got to make a decision and you might be wrong. So I end up kind of sitting at the, at the not sit, well, sometimes I sit, but standing at the top of the bed with this kind of team that's forming around us. And some of them have to be really eyes in on what they're doing. But if the whole team is eyes in on what they're doing, then we lose situational awareness. So you have to stand back, you have to monitor what's going on, but you also have to cast forward what's gonna happen next, what's gonna happen after that. Because the whole hospital has to stand up and respond to give these really sick patients what they need. Mm -hmm. So we need to be thinking about who needs to know that they need to do something in 10 minutes, who needs to know that they need to do something in 20 minutes, how are we going to know that they know, and how are we going to make sure that the team has, is aligned around what we're going to try and achieve, yeah. Yeah. and how are we going to make sure that the people in this team, the individuals in this team, 
are able to deliver their best performance at what they need to do. Because one of the, it took me a long while to realize this, but when, when people arrive at the trauma team, I don't know what they were doing. They might have been being bollocked by their boss. They might have been having a difficult conversation. Quite often, they're fatigued. Yeah. And fatigue is a huge issue for us in terms of our teams in the health service. I don't know if they've had lunch. I don't know if they've got a full bladder. All these things actually make a big difference to their performance. And, and one of the things we know is that individuals have a capacity. If you ask them to work beyond their capacity, like they just can't do it. Mm -hmm. You can't motivate someone if they're, if they're full. Yeah. And, and the team has a capacity as well yeah and just just rewinding a little bit it sounds like those points of collective decision making and and then going with the direction that you're choosing to go with are, are essential because it's not as if you're going to stop and let, let's let's have an open forum as to sort of see what we should do how, how do you get to the point where there is that trust that kind of sh shared picture within the team to, to to maximize the speed with which those decisions are made and responded to as one when you've got this very disparate team that's coming, because well, that sounds like the, the challenging bit in the same way that Lloyd working with you know, a, a group of people, we know they've got the same background, so there's, there's some shared ground. How do, how do you manage mm. that in, in that life and death scenario? So I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to align people around a mental model. Okay. So usually you have a minute before they arrive, mm -hmm. you get everyone's name, and um, you try and put them in a frame of mind that's going to get the best performance out of them. But you can also create a bit of a mental model. This is what I anticipate. If this happens, we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do that. Yeah. Then as the information comes in, so some of it comes from the doctors doing the examination. Um, we might do an ultrasound scan. The paramedics might give us a bit more history. Quite often, it's how the patient looks yeah. Yeah. and just your sense of, is this person bleeding? Are they not? You, you progressively update the team on what your mental model is and what your intent is. So that extroverting and very, very explicitly sharing is critical. Because I think that's probably mm -hmm. something I see not, there's a lot of assumptions in other environments that we're all bright people, we know what we're thinking, let's crack on and go in different directions together at, at high speed. Mm. You, um, you can overcomplicate it, right? Right, okay. And so you've, you've got to create clarity. Yeah. And I guess that's one of our other really important tasks is the more complex it is, the sicker the person is, the more emotion involved in it, the more clarity we've got to um, create. And there's sometimes when you have to say to people, look, you don't need to be part of this decision process because I need all of your attention on getting this big old line in this person's neck yeah, yeah. and come back to me, let me know when you're ready to be part of it again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and with, so it, it sounds like, and we, when we talked on the phone before, we, we were sort of rolling through the scenario of a team full of individuals where no individual has the absolute skill, experience and mastery of what's going on but you need to have a team that's got mastery over the situation. How, how, and, and particularly those cases where it's not going so well. How, how, do you, how do you keep helping the team respond to stuff where it, 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 you know, none of you really know the answer, but there needs to be a collective answer and it's still not going so well. What, what's, what's the approach there? So I think a lot of that is about your self-control as a leader. Okay. And your job is to maintain this um, challenge mindset However sick the patient is, however much it's getting more difficult, so long as the team perceives that what we're dealing with here is a challenge, then we're in a good place. Mm -hmm. As soon as there's a sense of we're losing something, then it's quite hard to, to pull that back. Yeah. And, and, and how do you manage yourself then in that situation? Because if you're the leader of that and, the, and there's got to be, what, what's going on for you? What are you doing to regulate yourself in those moments? 
so there's loads of things that I've, I think probably learned from you <laughs> um, and, and the time with the athletes. I think um, there are some practical things you can do around breathing. I think I do quite a lot of monitoring how my body language is, mm -hmm. because if my body language is tense, then it makes me tense, but it communicates to other people. Um, I think I think of something that um, Catherine Granger, who was one of the rowing athletes who now is um, the chair of uh, UK Sport, yeah. um, said when I asked her about this, because when I was competing, there was always this horrible moment where you've warmed up, you push off, and you're about to go up to the start, and you'd be, you'd be paddling along, and you, I, you'd be thinking, God, this is going to hurt, and <laughs> I don't want to do this. And you'd look at the marshals, and I'd look at them and I'd go, you lucky bastards. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess for us, it's like whether the porters are part of the, um, the trauma team and their job is to go and get the blood. And I look at them and go, oh, lucky bastards. Lucky bastards. Everyone's surrounded by yeah. lucky bastards. Yeah. And, and what she said was, the alternative to being there is not being there. And I think that's really important. When I think about this, I think, well, this patient is sick. They need help. This is what I wanted to do. If I was not, if I was the porter, then I wouldn't be able to be this person who was helping. Yeah. And so actually, it's, it sounds really pat to say that pressure is a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the fact that you're feeling under pressure is a sign that you have an opportunity to do good. Yeah. And that's the kind of the, the message, I think, that you try and create in your team is, I'm, I'm glad I'm here. However, <laughs> however awful it is, I'm glad I'm here. And I'm glad you're here, even though I've never met you. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you, specifically you, are there. And I recognise that you are feeling pressure, but I'm still glad it's you with me because we're going to do our best. Um, our boss at London's Air Ambulance is really clear that although we have very, very good outcomes and we do some things that are not done anywhere else in the world, we're not trying to be the world's best. We're just trying to be the best that we can for our patients. And that reminds me of the, the other thing <laughs> that's different, which is that we fail a lot. Okay. Yeah. So... London's major trauma network is, is this incredible thing. There are four major trauma centres, there's an air ambulance, um, and we've concentrated all the expertise in a small number of places, and it means that since 2010, survival for major trauma in London has increased by 50%, which is incredible. Yeah. There is nothing else in medicine that has done that, and there's nowhere else in the world that gets the survival mm. that we do in London. But that's all system. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's all system. What that means is that the patients for whom we can make a difference, that group is getting smaller and getting sicker. Yeah. And when, my audience never really know me because, because they, well, they, they don't appreciate it, certainly, because they're definitely having the worst day of their life <laughs> and most of them won't remember it. Yeah. But, but some of them will die yeah. and they'll die despite what we do, hopefully not because of what we do and and so we have to create an environment where people can deal with essentially failure yeah. Yeah. and they can take the next mission immediately mm. because the nature of the work is that on, on air ambulance we'll do six jobs a day probably one of those six people will die mm -hmm. similar ratio happens in the hospital and the next patient doesn't care that you're upset about the first one they just need the best that you can do yeah. So how you deal with failure or a sense of failure and how you manage your team's response to that and maintain their performance is, is a huge challenge. Yeah, yeah. 
and, and, and definitely when you get a chance to talk to Tom later and when we get to some of the Q&As, we'll, we'll see if we can get into some conversations about creating a just culture, uh, an opposite to a blame culture. You know, there's some fascinating stuff from sort of, you know, unearthing performance capacity in those kind of environments, which, which, are, which are really compelling. Um, la last thing, just to finish off with, Tom, um, can, can, you, can you talk to me just about the shift in decision-making that means when you're on the air ambulance and you're going out to help someone who's fundamentally dead, unless you get there, how does that shift your philosophy compared to what's happening if you're in, a, sort of in, the, in the hospital and there's, you know, someone's been brought into you? Because I know, I know some, of the, some of the choices you make are very different when you're out in the field compared to how they would be in there. And I think that shift in philosophy is really interesting. I think I probably feel the same as Lloyd. It's actually a lot easier <laughs> when you're out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because you have more control. The team on the air ambulance is two people. And there are certainly times when somebody comes into recess and I think what I'd like to do is take them out on the ambulance ramp <laughs> with one paramedic and we'll just crack on. But, but, the, but the actual difference is in terms of um, the amount of simultaneous activity that can right, go on. Okay. Yeah. And that means that as the team leader, you have to maintain your own bandwidth much more. You have to delegate better, which is tough mm -hmm. for doctors because we're pretty arrogant. <laughs> um, and... You, you have to make sure that your situational awareness is maintained. Yeah. Um, and situational awareness is key. Right. Yeah. Your ability to, to place what is going on in a wider context and anticipate what's going to happen um, is like you, you, you fight to preserve it and people will come and try and take it away from you. Yeah. Um, and you have to be sympathetic to that. So if a child comes in and they're with their family, that is going to take up some of your bandwidth yeah. because you're empathising with the parents. You know, I've got kids and... Yeah. I see that, um, and it's going to affect the team, but we want them to be there. And so to maintain your situational awareness, you almost have to step a little step further back. Sometimes you find yourself forcing yourself to be away from the patient, because what all doctors want to do is touch the patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that kind of you know, speaks to the importance of within, within, a high performer, within a high performer, they are aware and they don't judge, but they respond. So it's okay for me to feel that empathy towards the child, and I know it's there, but actually now I, now I can respond right, and, and, and it's the acceptance of it, I guess, yeah. which, is, which is a critical part of it. So I'm going to quote you back to you again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is about accepting the facts and rejecting the interpretation, okay. and I use yeah. that a lot. Yeah. I can't change the facts. I can't change this is tragic. I can't change that you're upset. Yeah. I can't change that I feel empathy with that circumstance, but I can reject the interpretation that that has to change my performance. And when we think about failure, that is really difficult because sometimes you will go to a patient who is very similar to a patient who you feel like you failed. Yeah. And you can't ignore the fact that you failed, but you can change the interpretation that you will not be able to do this now. And that's why it's really important you know, when you talk about reflection is that if you've had a moment of failure, if you've had critical feedback, that you know what, you understand it, and you know what action you're going to take. So that your self-talk then is, I accept that that didn't go well, and this is what I'm going to do. And that moves your, your locus of control, your sense that you're in charge of your fate, yeah. back inside. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, as with all of them, we're uh, running out of time on that one, Tom. So uh, I'd like to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um,